If you're here and you want to study the book of Revelation with us, we're headed to chapter 10. There are notes to the back, and I think Pat's going to come walking through with those notes if you didn't pick them up. So we're headed to Revelation chapter 10. As you're turning there and getting your notes to get set, let's do a little bit of mind game here. Name something kids use for fun but an adult would use for exercise. Jump rope, bicycle. Did we cover the whole gamut? Is that it? That's all the exercise we do. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's, here's what they said. The pool, okay, swimming, trampoline, jump rope, the, a ball. Not sure what that means. Okay, and then a bicycle. Name something kids would play in or with, but adults would not. In the mud. That's going to be up there, too. Anything else? What would you say? Oh, you didn't say. What would you say? In a dryer? Don't you ever play hide-and-seek in a dryer? Okay, in a box. Dryers are a good place to hide-and-seek. And then when the grandkid's in there, you just hit the tumble just once. You know, anything else here? The rain. I kept on hearing brain. <laughs> and I knew that wasn't right. Okay, yeah. Kids don't play with their brains. <laughs> okay, here's what they said. The tub, a tree or playhouse, kiddie pool, sandbox, and number one was the dirt or mud. Name a job you would not want to have if you worked for a circus. <laughs> Especially in the elephant tent, right? Setup, okay. The lion tamer, okay. Anything else? Trapeze guy, okay. Anything else? The what? The bearded lady? <laughs> oh, Kevin, there's so much I want to say with that. I just, I just, I just better move on. Okay. Elephant train, tightrope walker, human cannibal, lion tamer, clown, and janitor was no one. Other than work, what do people talk about with the coworkers? Kids? Weather? What's vacation? Sports? Okay, here's what they had. Weekends, TV, movies, weather, sports, relationships, and family. You didn't say it, but I think there's two other topics that people would want to talk about. The two things you're never supposed to talk about. Politics and religion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here we go. These are the seven trumpet judgments. Okay, on the right is they're in order. The I'm sorry, on the left they're in order, on the right they are not. Put them in order. What do you mean, yeah, uh-huh. Okay, uh, we'll work together, we'll make it easy. Number one trumpet, which one was it? Dun, 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 dun. You are absolutely right. By the way, did any of you get an inkling this week with the uh, fires from Canada coming down and the way it affected our climate? Do you remember now during, what's that? Oh, you're, it's a yes. I thought you wanted to add to that. Okay. Isn't it amazing how just those fires up there affected us? Think when one-third of all vegetation worldwide is burning. Yeah, and we were bothered by the climate of it. It's, it'll be amazing. Okay, number two. One-third of the seas. Should we go with that? Okay, you got it. Number three. 
third trumpet. The fresh water. One third of the fresh water is affected. Okay. You got it rolling here, guys. It's, you're doing well. It's one thirds in the first part. Okay. That was a subtle hint. Okay. So, what is the next one? Okay. The luminaries or the lights. And what well, we saw this week might be the explanation for one third of those luminaries were darkened, right? Instead of them collapsing, could there be ash clouds? Could there be burning that would block out the sun? Yeah, so yeah, we saw a little bit of evidence of that. Okay, number five. You're still doing well in the one-thirds. Subtle hint. Okay, the demons, the demons attacked for five months, and then right after that, the second group of demons will... I hit something wrong here. Oh, that's right. That's right. The sixth is supposed to be the D. Uh, let's do this. There's one missing. How did you do that, Deb? Um, number six is going to be the one-third of the demons. Are, the demons kill one-third of mankind. Okay, so you have the five-month attack where they don't die. And then you have the, uh, the time where they do die, and that's the one-third. And then it ends up right before the coming of Jesus Christ, the seventh trumpet blows. So we're in the midst of this. For those of you who haven't been with us and just dropped in today because you're in the parenting class, we're going through the book of Revelation. We have been discussing all these details, and we're going basically uh, chapter by chapter, or if you're on my timetable, verse by verse, or if you're on my timetable, word by word, um, and we're going through. So we have this time frame that we are living in the church age somewhere before the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church takes place right shortly thereafter. How long? We don't know. Then there's going to be a treaty signed with Antichrist in Israel. What that treaty is, we don't know. They'll sign a treaty, and it's going to be set up for a seven-year period. And in the first three and a half years, it's going to be good for Israel, but what about the rest of the world? It's going to be bad. What, what judgments take place here? Seal. You got it. Seal judgments. Okay. Chapter 6, 7, and 8. Then after the seal judgments, then we enter into the next, the number 7 seal opens up the trumpet judgments. Right. And they go through the period of time. Now, what he's done in the book of Revelation, if you look at the chapters, he's going to give us an overview and then once in a while, he's going to plug in some information. But his goal up to chapter 9 is giving us an overview up to the seventh trumpet blowing and Jesus coming back. And so he gives us that overview. And we are right at chapter 10 is where we stopped last week. He had mentioned in that chapter there's a break of information. There's a gap between number 6 and number 7 trumpet. He gives us some, some information, and John's giving us this background of why it got so bad. And he's told to measure the temple because the temple is, God's going to reclaim it. Why does God have to reclaim the temple? What has been going on for 42 months? Okay, the temple will be blanked underfoot. Trod underfoot, okay, for 42 months. So he's backed up. After he's given the data of the trumpet judgments, he backs up and says, oh, by the way, this is what's been going on for the last three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. And so he gives some of that information, and he's ended up in chapter 10 saying, don't worry, God's going to get it back. God's going to take it back. It's his property. He's measured and basically marked not just the temple, but what else? There's people he's marked that he measured. 
Okay, those who were worshiping. Okay, those who were truly worshiping, which would probably be the remnant of the Jews. And so his whole point in chapter 10 is saying God's going to take it back. Before we get to the end of the 42 months, God's going to recover, reclaim. Who does he use to do this recovery program? The two prophets. That leads us into chapter 11. So chapter 11 is where we're at now, and it starts off at the beginning of chapter 11 with that measurement. I gave you a a measuring reed or rod or tape measure like unto a rod. The angel said, rise, measure, decord it without the temple leave because it's going to be given to the Gentiles. They're going to tread underfoot the, uh, the whole city as well as the exterior of the temple for 42 months. Then he explains how God gets it back. He says, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy for 1,260 days. How long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years, or how many months? 42 months. All these numbers line up perfectly. Okay. And he says, um, they are going to be clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth, which I have no idea what he's talking about. And if any man will hurt them, fire will proceed out of their mouth and they devour the enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up the heavens that it rain not in the days of their prophesying uh, and have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to smite the earth with the plagues as often as they would. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, shall overcome and kill them. Let's stop there. Let's just do a little bit of just question and answer here. Okay? He says at the very beginning of this text, talking about the two prophets, he, he says, I will grant them my, my uh, witness, uh, or grant authority to my witness. Who's talking? Okay, it's probably God or Christ, and or Christ. Okay, and what does it remind you of? Any other text that Jesus spoke about giving authority, giving assistance? When he sent the disciples out in Matthew 28, sounds very similar to that. And so he is somebody, whoever's speaking, is somebody who possesses authority to give, and he possesses the witnesses. That makes perfect sense when you go back to the previous two verses. Because what has God just claimed? He has authority in measuring the temple. And so this thought comes that it's going to be the Spirit, and very similar, as you already mentioned, um, that it lines up with those others. He calls them witnesses, or in this text, martyrs. What English word does that sound sound like? Okay, it is that same idea, okay, that comes from that text. And he's talking about these fellows being martyrs. Here's your, your debate. Some people think these are real people, two of them. Others think that these are two institutions. You know, like the 24 elders represented the church. These two represent a something. They represent Israel. They represent some spiritual entity of that point. And so the discussion becomes, are we taking this passage literal that there's two men who will be at the temple, who will prophesy in Jerusalem, and they will defend themselves with fire, they will bring drought upon the earth. Is it to be taken literally? Interesting for you to understand that the word that is used, martis, in the New Testament, is only used in reference to real people. Never to a movement, never to a power, never to an institution. It's always used in reference to individuals, which would then lend credence that these are two real people. Okay, and... um, 
as well, that whole idea of two or more witnesses fits the Old Testament concept. And I remind you, what period of time have we reverted to during these seven years? It is part of the law or the Old... I say Old Testament and I say it tongue-in-cheek. It's part of the law or the time of Israel. We've reverted back to dealing with the nation of Israel. The last seven years of that entity, the church is gone, so we're back to dealing with Israel. And the law that he gave them said you need two witnesses. So God follows his own law in giving the two witnesses. Their attire, their speech, everything seems to lend itself. These are two people. Okay, And so as these two people are giving, what are they supposed to be doing? What is their job that God gives them, according to this text? To preach the gospel? Okay, So he tells them that they're going to prophesy for 1,260 days. We got that when you look at it. You see in verse 3, prophesy for 1,260 days. What does it mean to prophesy? Ah, there's a couple different definitions. Okay, there's a couple different thoughts all the way through the Bible. Sometimes when people prophesied, what were they doing? They were foretelling. Okay, that essentially shows up in what time period? The Old Testament. They're they're predicting the future. What is the majority of usage in the New Testament? What does prophesy mean? Yeah, not foretelling. But forth telling, or telling forth, proclaiming the me- a message. And so I agree with you that what they're doing, Lloyd, is they are preaching the gospel of the kingdom at this point, and they're prophesying. And so they're giving that information, proclaiming, preaching, speaking forth. And that 1260 days equals what we've already said. How many months? How many years? When is it? The second half of the tribulation period the last half of it so they're preaching throughout the first uh, throughout the last half how did god give himself a witness god always gives himself a witness who is witnessing in the first three and a half years and they could still be witnessing but who was primary witnesses in the first three and a half the 144,000 from chapter 7 okay and so these fellows can do miracles what are, what do they include what are their miracles that these two prophets preachers can do they can do plagues, fire. Is that what you said? What did you say, Bob? Hold the rain. Okay. So they have the, uh, the ability to do these different miracles, to turn the water into blood as well and to smite with plagues. Why do they do that? There's two reasons in this text. One is very clear. They're protecting themselves. Did you catch that? That they're able to do this, and he says, he makes that, that comment, if any man will hurt them, fire proceed out of their mouth. And he goes on, he calls them their enemies, they'll be devoured. He that will hurt them, he must be dealt with in this manner. So one is self-preservation. Why else in the Bible, and very reasonably at this time, why else can they do miracles? What else do miracles do? for a Jewish people that they're preaching to. Okay, do you remember the Jews did this to Jesus? If you're the Messiah, show us a sign. Why did they do that? Because God told them that if somebody is coming and giving them a message, there's two proofs to their message. 
One is they could be able to do, they could be confirmed with miracles. And the other one that was more definitive proof was whatever they foretold would come to pass. Why did he give two witnesses to the prophets? Well, because God works on two witnesses. And what could be done with miracles? What could all alternate forces do with the miracles? They could replicate them. They could duplicate. So God gave, all the time, two witnesses. And he said, okay, if these guys are from me, they'll be able to have these signs, but what they say is going to be accurate. It's going to come to pass. There's a third and fourth we can go on that has to agree with other scripture, but primarily those are the ones mentioned in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy and elsewhere. So what happens is they're given the ability to be able, as they're preaching, to be able to do these miracles to get the attention of the Jews because according to Isaiah, he talked about how in the latter days they would do miracles. Joel did the same thing. They'll catch your attention. They'll show you these signs. So what I wanted to do is just pause for a second and set up a biblical concept for you that this is a reality and we're going to be entering the book of Acts in two weeks. Keep this in mind especially in this day and age that we live in, are there people running around and claiming they can do miracles? Yeah, can they heal? Can they, can they you know, claim, can they claim to do other, all kinds of things? The answer is yes. Okay. Now, they, they claim, exactly. Okay, there is a pattern throughout Bible history, throughout human history according to the Bible. Whenever major new revelation comes from God, they were accompanied by signs and miracles to confirm the messenger and the message. This is exactly what we read in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we read what he says. God bearing them witness with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In that text... He's talking about, we better pay attention to this new message because God bore them witness. The new message that was, first of all, preached by the new message, the new covenant message. Who first preached it? Go back a little bit. Who's the first one that started preaching it? Go uh, In between. Okay. In between. Jesus Christ talked about the New Testament. Okay, so he talks about how the, it was first spoken by the Son and then was spoken by them that heard him. Who's he referring to? The apostles. Okay, the apostles that carried it on. And so in the context of Hebrews 2, he's saying Jesus came and preached a new message that they weren't to live under the law, but they were living under the age of grace. Okay, and he preached that message, and then it was carried on by his apostles, God bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders. Did God bear the apostles witness as they started taking out the gospel? Did he have signs and miracles and wonders in the book of Acts? Yes, absolutely. And so there was a number of those miracles that took place. Even did Jesus do miracles? Okay, did he do them to catch the attention of the people at times? Yeah, they were a sign. They were a sign. Uh, name me some of the miracles he did to the crowds. He fed them. Okay, what else? Okay, he uh, water into wine. What else? What's that? Healed the blind. Not only did he heal blind, but there are several texts that say he healed as many as came to him. That's including... A lot of people. 
Okay? I challenge the faith healers to do that. Okay? Um, but this is God bearing the witness. So if you do a historical biblical timetable and you watch a pattern of when rev- new revelation is given, it is often initially accompanied with miracle signs. I'm not saying when, re- when the Bible is being recorded. Okay? There are times when there are things being recorded that aren't new revelation. They are recording history. Does that make sense? No? Yes? Okay. okay. Um, name, me some, name me some books that are purely historical, accurate historical information. First and second Samuel. Keep it going. The Kings, the Chronicles. They are recording history. Okay? And so, was there miracles that happened during that time? Some, but not all. Uh, let's back up. Even before Samuel, what do you have that's history? Joshua, Judges, okay? Were there some miracles? Yeah, some. But when was there a predominance of miracles given for the Jewish people to see that God has a new message for them? In the Exodus. And when they go to Mount Sinai and their initial movements through the wilderness as God is giving them. So if you start putting this together, a lot of the bulk, not, not every, every instance, but the bulk when miracles came in a package where there was multiple of them. Moses and Moses is giving a new message called the law. Then you go up and you have some period of time where the prophets are giving a message for calling people to revival. Do you remember any prophets that had miracles that were in abundance? Elijah, Elisha, Daniel. Okay, and they're calling the Jewish people, getting their attention to come to revival. But there's hundreds of years, dozens of years that there weren't all these miracles, but they came in these packaged units. Okay, then what do we have? Jesus Christ shows up. Did he have an abundance of miracles? Oh, yeah, and he's got this new revelation that is building on the old. And right after him, who goes out? The, the apostles. And in the early part, early part of the book of Acts, is there an abundance of miracles? Yes, and then they fade. They fade off by the end of the book of Acts. In fact, could Paul do miracles, the apostle Paul? Okay, could he always do miracles? No, because towards the end of his ministry, he can't even raise um, uh, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, remember he said he, he's writing to Philippians. He said he almost died. You know, and my heart was burdened, but he's getting better right now. And so as you have a completion of the New Testament being written, the, the epistles, all of a sudden there's a tapering off of these miracles. Why? Because when that which is perfect or complete is come, then that which is in part or tidbits will be done away with. So as they were getting the completed word of God and it was being written down and recorded, they didn't need the miracles anymore. They don't need the miracles. How did Jesus put it when he says, you know, when he, when he told the story about the man in hell says, send somebody from the dead. To go back and warn my brothers. 
And Jesus responded, they already have the written law. They have the written law. If, even if somebody came from the dead, it wouldn't make a difference. And so when we make that application based on 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about the completion of the Word of God, when we have the completed Bible, we don't need all kinds of signs to say, oh, wait, God's giving a new message. We just need to be listening to this message. But there's going to be another period when there's a revival and a renewal, even according to 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about the tongues will be done away with and the prophesying will be put aside for a period of time. He leaves the window open that it's going to revive one day. When is there going to be a revival of a lot of miracles? It's what we're studying today, if that's a hint. Okay. It's during the tribulation period. It's during the tribulation period because, again, now, they're preaching and their message is primarily to what group of people? To the Jews, okay? Who, by the way, are spiritually, how do they rate as far as stubbornness compared to most of the world? Okay? Really high. And so he's predicted, in, even in, when he's dealing with the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, he says these gifts were given as a sign to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, tongues, etc., etc. And if you go through the New Testament, you would even find that every appearance of tongues was in the presence of Jews. So I'll never understand why we say that they're valid for Gentile churches, because that wasn't the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern that they were primarily directed to what group of people? To the Jews to get their attention. And that was only for a period of time until the completed Word of God, when it was complete, then God said they have the Word of God. They have the Word of God. Now, another period of time where he's going to try to get their attention and work and try to get this message that Jesus is coming back is going to be during the tribulation period. The two prophets, they're able to do that. And so what they're going to do is they're going to come and preach. Now, what do these guys look like? This is important information. Seems mundane, but what do we note about their appearance? Sackcloth? Is that what you said? What's sackcloth? Okay, it's like a burlap. Okay. What, 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 do, what would be nice about it? Why not? Okay, it'd be like wearing a tie. Okay, something really uncomfortable. Okay, why did they do it? Why do people wear this stuff? To stand out? Okay. Is there another, another reason? That, that's true. It does stand out at times. When they're mourning? Is that what you said? Okay, um, why would they do that? Because they feel miserable, so this is a display of miserableness, or if you're going to, um, you have the loss, and so if I'm going to mourn with you, I would become uncomfortable in sackcloth and even do ashes at times. Okay, and so you have this happening that this rough garment, if you go through the Old Testament, it was a Jewish thing that they would wear this, and uh, more than just the Jews, ancient Near Eastern area. They would not only do it mourning, but they could also do it if they were trying to express real humility. And the idea of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to really show I'm, I'm, you know, feel like nothing before the Lord, I'll just come before the Lord in burlap. And so, uh, did any churches ever pick up on this through the ages? Who, who, which, which type of people's groups picked up on this kind of thing when it comes to worship? Mortifiers. The mortifiers, okay. The monks, the monk S's, 
okay, try to make yourself uncomfortable so you, it makes you holier. Okay, and so they blended this concept and they got it from there, which it, it doesn't translate in the New Testament well at all. But you have these different accounts that people in the Old Testament, they would dress for the occasion when they are repenting, when they're mourning, when they're in a fasting mode of saying, God, we really need you, we are desperate. And So my question to you is this, why would the two prophets dress this way? What would motivate them in this future sense to dress that way? Okay, it would get people's attention. Okay, and if, they, if the Jews are thinking Old Testament, it's going to catch attention. So that's true. What would you say? Okay, uh, what respect? Are they mourning for what's coming? Okay, they're mourning for what's coming. Could they be mourning for something that's happening right during their time? Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. What's, what's happening in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 that they could be upset about? The temple is being, well, not, uh, the, not the temple proper, but the exterior of the temple. Well, let's back up. Has the temple been invaded? By who? Antichrist has come in and sat in the temple and prayed himself to be, would that upset a pure Jew? Okay, what has happened to, what, beyond the temple, what is their most sacred site? Not just site, but even Jerusalem. What's happening to Jerusalem at this point? Okay, Jerusalem is being trod underfoot by the Gentiles. Could that cause these two prophets to be extremely upset? Sure. Okay, so we have all these things. Jerusalem's underfoot. Antichrist has taken over the temple. Could they be mourning over the fact demons are running rampant? Attacking people for five months who want to die but they can't die. And then another horde of demons come and they are able to wipe out... One-third of the population, okay? So you have that taking place. And people who are seeing all this, how are the, how, what is the general response of the general population in regards to repentance? Chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. They're, they're totally ignoring and they're continuing to worship, okay, the idols and the demons that we've talked about already. So we have this idea, society has rejected the Lord, the hardness of the Jewish hearts. There's death, there's demons, there's destruction. All of this could cause them to say, we're wearing sackcloth and ashes. There is also, could be something else. It could be their own humility before the Lord. That they are just, we are nothing before God. So these two prophets are dressed this way. And we come to the verse that when I read it, I said, I don't have an idea what he's talking about. In verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Most commentators that you're going to pick up, they aren't as smart as you. Most commentators go, we really aren't sure exactly what he's talking about. And so there's a tendency of now um, guessing, postulating. There's, uh, There's a variety of things that can happen. Okay. The closest that we can get to Bible is to say, okay, what is he referring to? Is there any other time in the Bible that he talked about two lampstands and two candlesticks? I bet you if you have references, you've got it in your margin. Zechariah chapter, okay, Zechariah 4. 
Zechariah 4 talks about what happens back then is, anybody remember the situation of Zechariah? In Jewish history, what are they doing? Anybody remember? They're rebuilding the temple. They have come out of their 70 years of captivity, and they've come back, and they're starting to rebuild the temple. And as they're rebuilding the temple, they're under a man who is the political leader. His name is Zerubbabel. Say that five times real fast, okay? So Zerubbabel is the political uh, civic leader. Anybody remember the high priest? Joshua. Joshua is the high priest leading. And those two are helping to guide the Jews to come back, rebuild the temple. When they do get it rebuilt, according to the book of Haggai, the old men who see it break out in... We mentioned this here a couple weeks ago. They break out in tears. There is joy overseeing the temple, but they are sad because it doesn't look like it used to be. It's not like the... Yeah, the good old, the good old days. Yeah, okay, you know how that goes. Okay, and so he's talking in this text, and it's a really interesting text. If this, and I think it is, if this is the reference to what he's talking about, and he's making a parallel, what happens in the text as he's talking about it, he's saying, and he makes it very clear back in Zechariah 14, uh, I think right about 12 or 13, he makes this comment as he's giving this picture that there's two olive trees, they're connected to the menorah, this is the lampstand of the Jews, and there's a perpetual flowing of oil from the trees into the lampstand so that the light never... Okay. And so this whole point is, this is the nation of Israel. Okay. The nation of Israel, are they ever going to be destroyed? No. No. Could they be suppressed? Yes. But they're going to, uh, there's going to be a light. There's going to be a light to the world. And so, so in, back in that passage, he makes the comment that he says, okay, he says this when, he, when, when uh, Zechariah is coming, he says, God gave us this to tell us this, not by man's might nor by man's power, but by my spirit. What, does, what represents the Holy Spirit in this vision? The oil. The oil represent that there's a continual flow of the oil that God will protect, provide, take care of. And he's promising them. And by the way, historically, when does this become absolutely uh, enacted in the fact that all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is perpetually being given to believers? Acts chapter 2, at the feast of or day of, Pentecost. Okay. So he's picturing all this, but at that time, he's giving them information. You're rebuilding of this temple. You're getting back into the land. You shouldn't have been back in the land. You should have been totally annihilated. You should have been wiped out. Who is working to provide and to keep you a perpetual nation? Yeah, it's the Spirit of God. It's God working through His Spirit. Not by our power, not by our might. And that's a good thing for the Jews to hear at that point, where if they were to settle back and go, look at us, we made it, we have recovered. And he's reminding, it's not by your power, it's not by your cleverness, it's by, okay, it's all God. So that's the vision that's going on. And in that vision, then there's a question, a second question that's asked when it's given. What means, or what is, the, um, uh, what, the, the candlestick, the pipeline, and the olive branches that are standing? What do they represent? 
And Zechariah asks this question, or he's told by the angel revealing it to him. And so he gets more information. He says, okay, what are the two olive trees and the pipes through which it's going, through, the, through which the Holy Spirit is working? And in Zechariah 14, he says, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Who are the two appointed ones that are leading Israel at that point? Go ahead, say it five times. Zerubbabel at that time. Zerubbabel and Joshua. And he points them out that he says that God makes comment that these are these men that he's using at this time through whom the Spirit is working and guiding and directing. But it's not them that makes it. It is... The Spirit of God. Okay, so you have all that information. That then, as he gave that um, pertinent information to Zechariah 4 in Zechariah's day, does God ever do this? Does he have a double meaning prophetically? Can he be giving some contemporary information that can also be applied to the future? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for unto you... A child shall be born this unto a virgin. Well, there was something happening at that moment of Isaiah 7, but we understand it was also the bigger picture. It was a picture of Jesus Christ coming in a miracle form. So here you have this same thing happening. You know, in the Old Testament, do you, you have a picture of Jonah, Jonah and the whale. Wonderful picture. Did it also foretell something in the future? Jesus Christ would be in the grave... Okay, so you have these double meanings at times that he gives with prophecy. Well, this is one of those double-meaning passages. If we understand Revelation 11 accurately, he is saying, now, wait a minute, what's happening is they represent back in those days, but they also, according to Revelation 11, these represent two anointed messengers through whom the Holy Spirit is working to do a mighty work of God, not of man, but it's by God's Spirit fits perfectly with the tribulation. Because what has he just said two verses before? Who's going to get this all recovered? Who's going to reclaim the temple? It's going to be God, not by the power of the Jews. And so God is not... These, these two prophets, they are just man that God is working through. Does that make sense? Yes, no? Have I totally lost in this one? Okay, so the true prophets, they are, they are people that God uses. But remember, they're only people. The one who's making all this come about, where he's reclaiming the Jewish nation, who's, who's producing the work? It's God. It's God the Spirit. Okay, so you have this, and here's the question that you're going to have most commentators, most people discuss. Who are the two prophets? Moses and Elijah is going to be your most common, um, <laughs> what did you say, guesstimate? Yeah. Uh, uh, people will say, okay, they'll say they're two of the Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. And they'll th- throw other people up. Now, here, let's, let's just put, put all the options on the table. They are two people that, are, that are, could be alive today, I don't know. But people that are contemporarily living in that time period that were born and they're 20 what we don't have a time frame um 
if the rapture was to happen and the tribulation starts this year yet. There would be two people that were born and are alive right now. We don't know who they are, but they are regular people that God will use. Godly people. Okay, that's one possibility. The other possibilities are, these are reincarnations of Zerubbabel and Joshua. I have no other word for it. Um, they have come back from the dead, and they are there, and it's the same two that were in Zechariah 4. Others will say this is Elijah and Enoch. The reason that they throw Elijah and Enoch, these two are the only two people that never died. And in this text, what happens to the two prophets? They die. And the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. Okay, so those who would say these are two people from the Old Testament come back to earth, the likelihood, if that were the case, it's Enoch and Elijah because they never died. The other ones that are thrown up, okay, that are, that are given are Moses and Elijah. Why do people, the majority of people say, well, if these are returned from the Old Testament people, why would they pick Moses and Elijah? Yeah, several of you said it already. They were, they were by the transfiguration when Jesus was there. They also, what are the miracles these two prophets do? They turn water into blood. They hold, the wa- they hold back the drought. What do they do with the enemies? Call down fire from heaven, and then there's plagues. What two Old Testament prophets did these? Moses and Elijah, okay? So they have the similar miracles done. They were at the transfiguration. And it goes back to that idea that the Jews understood that when he says they will be like unto, okay, then that's that's that personage. That's who it's going to be. They did this with another Bible character in the New Testament. They thought he was a re resurrected a reincarnated individual do you remember who do men say that he is John the Baptist and who did people run to Um, no who did they compare him to Elijah because there was a prophecy that says like Elijah in the wilderness saying make way prepare the way of the Lord and the Jews understood that to mean Elijah's coming back And they took it that way, and they ran with it, that John the Baptist was Elijah. What did the Bible indicate? What did they mean like he was going to be another Elijah? He was going to be like him, have that message and that, it didn't mean he was going to be him. But the Jews ran with that, and so what happens is there's a lot today that do that same thing. They run with this text and say it's Moses and Elijah or Elijah and Enoch. And I do have one problem with it being Moses. We already mentioned it. He died, okay? And so for him to come back from the dead would have to be a resurrection, and then he would be killed again. And that just, yeah. Now, so uh, me, this is me personally. I go with the first one, that these are people who are of the same character, caliber, um, same type of ministry, but they're two prophets that are born in that time period and live in that time period. And uh, so I've already, I've already told you what I think. Um, what are they capable of doing? They're able to bring fire from their mouth. What's that tell you about the world around them? Do, do read the text again. It says, 
If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours them. What's it tell you about the world? It's a violent place. Okay, excellent. What else? How does the world feel about these guys? They hate them. They absolutely hate them. Because they're going to do what? They're going to try to kill them, okay? So they're hated and they're attacked. And when they're hated and attacked, we read that the beast that ascends out of the, out of the pit is going to... Here, let's just jump down. Verse 7. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war with them, overcome them, kill them. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street in the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. And they of the people and the kindreds and the tongues and the nations... What's, what's that first phrase give you an idea about? Verse 9. When it says, They are the people, kindreds, tongues, nations. Everybody. Thank you. Everybody shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put into the graves. How in the world is that possible that everybody around the world can see bodies lying in Jerusalem? Does our day and age complement this passage? Yes, okay. Couldn't have been a hundred years ago. Okay. But here's one of those passages that makes sense to Bible scholars like you now, which didn't make sense years ago. They that dwell upon the earth, what are they going to do, verse 10? Because these two guys are dead. They're going to celebrate, and they'll even do what? They're going to send gifts to each other, and they're going to say what? These two prophets, what did they do to us? They torment... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this the world? How it twists the truth? Okay. Who attacks who? If you go back in the passage, who attacks who? The people attack the prophets. The prophets aren't on the... They're they're not out. They aren't Rambo prophets. Okay, trying to destroy. They're defending themselves. So who was actually tormenting who? But doesn't the world have a way of twisting and saying about you? You are unloving. You are cruel. You hate people because you don't tolerate all kinds of sin. It gets totally twisted around. Those people who stand on their soapbox and say, We are loving. We love everybody but you. So it's just the irony of this whole situation is so, so realistic. So they do their miracles. They withhold the rain. Now, remember, they're withholding rain for a period of time. Already, one-third of the water has been gone. So what's that mean for people? Okay, so you can understand. If these guys announce, you know, rain has stopped, and they're saying, send the rain, send the rain, and there's no rain, and there's one-third less water, they're going to really be in, in tough straits. And it says that these men, until their... This is an interesting phrase. Verse 7. And when they have finished their ministry, their testimony, excuse me, when they have finished their testimony, which means they were untouchable until God allows. Okay, until God, they're done. They are invincible. Okay, invulnerable. They're unstoppable. So what happens to them, we already read, they finish their testimony that God has scheduled. The beast ascends out of the bottomless pit. Here's a debate that you can have. Uh, I don't think it's worth the time, but here's a debate you can have. Who is the beast out of the bottomless pit? Let me throw this thought for you. It's the first of 32 references to the beast from here to the end of the book of Revelation. 
So this is the first one that talks about the beast ascending out of the bottomless pit. Who is the beast in chapter 13 that keeps on being called the beast? It's Antichrist. It's Antichrist. For the rest of the book, he is being called the beast, the beast, the beast. How would he say the beast ascending out of the pit? Why, why would it be Antichrist ascending out of a pit? But who's he in league with? With the demonic hordes who have already come out of the pit. Don't you remember? What the, the five, the, the plagues, five and six, the demonic forces who are coming out of the pit, who do they help to achieve his power? It's Antichrist. Okay, so you have all of this, that Antichrist here is going to make war against them, and uh, he comes along and it says he will make war against them, he will overcome them. Now, up to this point, remember, up to this point, anybody who touched them, okay, destroyed by fire. But there's somebody who can take them out. This plays really well into the book of Revelation. The one person who can take them out Antichrist, how will he look before the rest of the world who don't like these two prophets? Okay. So it all plays well together in that sense. He appears to be successful. And here's the question that comes up. And I'll stop here with this one. Where does this all take place? How do you know it's Jerusalem? Well, isn't there any other great city? In the book of Revelation, Babylon is called a great city. Yeah, here you go. In that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord... Okay. It's got to be what city? It's got to be Jerusalem. So why in the world is God calling Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt? Let's pick up next week right there. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.